Hey, it's then again with Ken <laughs> and Glenn. We're back. We're, we were never gone. That's true in a lot of ways. And our topic today is travel then versus travel oh, now. Wow. And then can be any time before, let's say, the past 20 years. Yep. Or really, last year, travel is constantly changing. And even with the, the things we complain about today, uh, with, oh, my commute, or, you know, oh, waiting for this seat on the plane, oh, I got bumped, you know, all of the things are nothing <laughs> compared nope. to travel in days gone by. You know, before the Transcontinental Railroad, how did you cross this continent? Well, usually, if you needed to go from, let's say, the Atlantic coast of North America to the Pacific coast, you didn't cross the continent. Right. Well, of course, the you, first, why you, would you why, is the first, yeah, first off, why would you? Uh, but but when but when it came time for there to actually be a need to, you would sail around the tip of South America and then back up, which points to a larger truth, which is water travel historically for most of mankind has always been the easier or quicker way to transport large quantities of anything. Large and and even to just to travel, if you're just needing to go somewhere. Water travel is so much easier. You get on some floating thing, and the water theoretically, or the wind, oh, yeah, takes does, you right. to where you're going. It was easier. And I love to use this this example. In if you're in Pennsylvania, in middle Pennsylvania, it is easier for you to take your crop from a wagon to the you know Monongahela, put it on a raft. Let That's it a river, by the way. That's a river. Sorry, <laughs> let it float from there down the Ohio River to the Mississippi River, all the way down the Mississippi River to the port of New Orleans and put it on a ship to send it somewhere than it is for you to travel 300, 350 miles from there to the port of Philadelphia. It's that much easier. It's that big a deal that you would take that seemingly circuitous route, mm-hmm. but it's easier, it's cheaper, it's safer. And you know what, what the, just the journey you outlined then also underscores the importance of the Mississippi River in the ad- advancement of the cities of the British colonists and the young, young American Republic. And also, using the Mississippi as the paradigm, it also illustrates why cities tended to be on rivers. You, you've got a city on a river, and usually at a fall line, which is you know the, the boundary from where the old ancient seashores used to be, and the, and the land starts you know sloping up, you, there's usually a series of waterfalls at the fall line. And you have a lot of city. Well, here in Georgia, Augusta, Macon, and Columbus, you know, three right. cities right across the fall line that were all, you know, centers of shipping goods further south. One-fifth of all American commerce in 1800 went down the Mississippi River. Yeah. The entire country, one-fifth. And that's, you said 1800, that's before the Louisiana Purchase, folks. <laughs> right. This, this is what right. we, we don't own or control this river, and yet still— 20% of all the commerce is going down a foreign-controlled river. That shows you how imperative it was to move your goods by water. That's just the way transportation worked. And, and like I say, it, it drives not just commerce, but it also drives, in a, in a lot of senses, politics. Let's use, let's use Virginia as, as an example. You know, Williamsburg, capital of colonial Virginia, largest, most prosperous, richest colony— but midway through the American Revolution, War for Independence, the capital moves from Williamsburg to Richmond. Richmond is a city built on a fall line. Not only is it safer from, you know, 
well, so or so they thought from depredations from the British, but then they forgot they had a navy and could sail <laughs> up river. But it's also closer to where the people that are growing the crops that are being shipped down river are. Mm-hmm. It, it's the, the the falling water, which is motive power, is being harnessed by water wheels for factories there. Transport and industry is centered on that river, and transport and industry go hand in hand. And that's the thing, you know, you have to remember, water is easy. You can go over land, but even today, you know, when we go over land, what do we do? We crawl in a car and we drive on an improved road, the interstate system. Right. Well, folks, there were not even improved roads in America in the early days. Right. And most people, to get from one place to the other, would walk or ride a horse if they're, right. if they're actually just traveling. And traveling is such... It's so inconvenient. Most people don't do it, only if they have very specific things to do. You, They had to stay overnight to break up their journeys in taverns. And these taverns, these inns, could be any... There were no private rooms, even for the wealthy, unless you're the very wealthy. Right. You would have to sleep in the room with other people, often in the same bed with someone else. You would have to eat whatever was given. If, if you were on the floor, like, great! What great lodgings. I, I had space on the floor I'm and indoors. dinner out of the common pot. What a great stay. That is so good. <laughs> um, which is one reason women This is going to be a great Yelp travel. review. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> women anyway, didn't travel right. because it was— Well, well, you if you were traveling as, as a family or with you know mixed gender in your party— you rode ahead and stayed with people you knew. Yes. I mean, that's, that's You arranged enough. it. Right, exactly. Yeah. It, Which it, is it, a whole other undertaking. Right. You, you, the, the, just casual spur-of-the-moment travel, no, not so much. It's going to be arranged carefully, especially if you've got a party, and, and you would prefer to know someone in the town yes. or on the way to the place where you stay, and you do it in stages. You and know? only the very wealthy traveled for pleasure. Right. If you're traveling, it's, it's courtesizes or musters or right. business transactions or Running something like that. Run, Running from creditors. Some things don't change. And, <laughs> you know, when you travel, these, these are, you know, the predominant form of work is a farm. If you're yeah. gone, the farm work's not getting done, right. which means you may not eat slash have crops to sell for money. So... It was very rare when the entire family right. could could travel somewhere. Um, and, you know, speak on that same topic, you know, when you just mentioned farms and crops, and, and we're talking about fall-line cities and things like that, for, you know, certainly all of the 18th century and most of the 19th, uh, most of the population lived within 50 miles of the coast. Guess what? Most fall lines are within you know that sort of range or or maybe a little bit more but uh, but things are very definitely bound by the geography of travel by water you know we, when we first start seeing the first improved roads the macadamized road is is the macadam's process yes you know is this process where it's it's, it's some guys a, a lot of guys with shovels and a lot of wagon loads of gravel they're digging up the the, the road packing gravel putting dirt back packing gravel it is incredibly arduous. It's a firm. And expensive. And very expensive. Exactly. That's the other thing. Time-consuming and expensive, and not a lot of places can afford it. You know, municipalities that are looking to increase their trade will macadamize the roads leading into town to, as an inducement to get the farmers sure. to bring yeah. their produce into town. So once again, you see the travel improvement maybe not driven so much for personal travel. It's for we got to get this commerce coming through here. we, we got to do something. Uh, you know, and, and that's pretty much the state of things. You know, a handful of improved roads and water until 
The huge improvement. Oh, you're going to say trains. Yes, I am. <laughs> but wait, but wait, I want to back up just for okay. one second, okay, just for one second, because one of the things that comes, trains are sort of the penultimate idea of yes. how to connect everything. Yeah. A couple of different things were done to ease it. One of the th- we like traveling on water, right? So what's one of right. the things we do? We actually dig huge ditches and make canals oh, enough, to right. make water go. Right. From the Great Lakes to the Hudson River, New York, the Erie Canal. Yeah. They originally tried to get the federal government to pay for this. Right. The federal government says, no, we don't want to do it because there were too many states' rights Southerners who didn't want their tax dollars to go to the North. Right. So New York— Yet they had no problem accepting tax dollars to build Fort Sumter. Anyway, keep weird? going. <laughs> and they— <laughs> As they completely derail the topic with a casual that's another, comment. That's, that's another railroad that's another, that's thing, the, though. Yeah. Derailing. Yeah. Uh, puns. So, the, so the canals, <laughs> yeah, they they're able to charge to travel. The companies, right? Private companies with some state, which is what the railroads become, with some state support, build these canals, and they charge people per pound or or what have right. you to move along them. And that sets up the idea with the turnpikes and things like that. A lot of the me the easy right. means of transport become privatized. Right. The turnpikes and toll roads are financing the, the McAdams process, that sort of thing. But you know, I'm, I'm, I am so glad you mentioned the canals because you know we had them here in Georgia, the, the Augusta Canal, and the canals usually tended to be once again at the fall lines uh, yes. where you got from the navigable river water above the fall to below the fall. That tended to be the places, and you know, uh, George Washington was involved in oh my God, two or three different canal companies. Because, you know, he was trying to he, – he loved the Potomac River. He lived on it. Uh, they originally wanted it to be the main they, waterway they did. to the Atlantic. And yeah. so they were they're constantly searching for ways to get some sort of trans-Appalachian, you know, pathway that could connect, the, the, say, the Ohio River to the Potomac. And as they do more exploring, they find out that that's just not practical. Uh, but, yeah, but, but prominent men, George Washington and others, are involved in just canal schemes and how can we make this flow better? How can we make our river the important river? Right. Because if we can make our river the important river, you know, the shekels will flow. So, you, exactly, you're absolutely right. The canals are hugely important. And, and there are some uh, – well, well, it's primarily – when a government entity does get involved, it does tend to be a state government instead of the federal government. Oh, absolutely, you know? yes, yes, exactly. Um, but then, to, you know, to, to to the point where you, where you're right, this is the big leap: is well, what if you can't, what if you can't put a canal? What if a road is just too much? Right. We've got this new technology, so we make you're right, the railroads. railroads, and and of course, the steam engine that's powering these locomotives is first harnessed on the water. You know, steamboats do a, a great right. job of. But once again, greatly facilitating water transportation. Yes. And as a side note, the importance of steamboats was that they could go against, against the, the current. current. Everything could float down the Mississippi to New Orleans, but mm-hmm. getting stuff up the Mississippi River was impossible until you powered the boat. Right. But those steam engines were harnessed. Right. And it is impossible to overstate the importance of railroads in the growth of America. Right. Well, and, and, you know, let's give an example right here in Georgia. You know, let's, let's, let's talk about the steamboat and the steam engine on locomotives. You know, Columbus, Georgia is a good example of that. It's, uh, it's becoming uh, a, pretty, a pretty populous, pretty, pretty developed place. Uh, it's, you know, it's, got, it's located on the falls of the Chattahoochee. Factories are being built there using the motive horsepower of the water. Uh, and the first steamboats start coming up in the, uh, in the 1830s. And uh, as a matter of fact, there's a great book called Perilous Journeys. But it talks about what a, what a very difficult river the Chattahoochee is to navigate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 
because Columbus is developing goods and services, it's, it's worth it to make the journey back and forth. And so then when railroads start getting developed, uh, just to use Columbus as an example, railroad spurs are going to Columbus, so you're having goods and, you know, like agricultural goods and their finished products there are shipped to Columbus and then steamboat down the river. So even right. when the locomotives and railroads start developing, they are still bringing stuff to a port or a city on a river so it can then be transported by river, at least in the early days yeah. of, the, of the railroad. Yeah. So the two kind of work in conjunction with each other until yeah. the railroad really takes off. Really take, because you can put a railroad track almost anywhere that you need to go. Yeah. Uh, you just have to have the money to pay for it. Right. And, and of course, what that means, again, this is these are 99% private industry. Uh, they work deals with the federal and state governments, so the federal and state governments give them the land to put the railroad on or, mm -hmm. quote, lease it mm -hmm. at incredibly reasonable rates, and then the state and or federal government gets their kickbacks. This is how railroad barons are born, and we get built more house and all these great things. Right, right. But, uh, but you know, you can... But when you own the railroad, you charge per you know per unit freight or per unit person what you're going, mm -hmm. what what you want to do to move it along. And and there, all these people that own railroads sort of come to an agreement that this is what we'll charge. Right. There's there's right. not. And this is the 19th century. It's not price fixing. It's not. Not price in the 19th century. No, it's it's business. <laughs> it's just the way business is done. Exactly. And but but it does connect things. Uh, you know, it, how long did it take Lewis and Clark to get from, oh, right. from the Mississippi to the Pacific? Right. Two years? Two years, right. And on, once, the, once the Transcontinental Rail Railroad was built, you could be there in three days. Right. Um, but, you know, there's also, for a while there, there's a conflict between, you know, the river-borne transport and the railroad. And, and uh, even though they work well in conjunction with each other, there's still some conflict. And one of the – here's my little trivia tidbit for, for transportation – one of my favorite stories is Abraham Lincoln is a lawyer for a railroad company in the 1850s. A steamboat full of freight crashed into the support of a railroad bridge and sued, saying you created an obstruction that should be removed. These, these shouldn't be here. Now, if the steamboat company wins this, this is going to have huge ramifications for the development of the railroad. If, if now every railroad company has to worry about being held liable for any future accident involving someone crashing into their bridge, it is going to stifle the development or at least going to make them go other places. They're, they're, well, Lincoln is the lawyer for the, for the railroad company, and he manages to argue successfully that just as other obstructions that are built by people aren't considered that person's fault if the steamboat captain can't steer away from it. So should the railroad uh, support for the for the bridges. And so he wins the case, you know, then becomes, quite frankly, a, a part of case law in the United States. So it's kind of cool that Lincoln, who, by the way, is the only U.S. president to hold a patent for a device to float steamboats over shallow water on rivers, <laughs> then wins... For the railroad company, a judgment against a steamboat company trying to say your bridge is an obstruction and therefore you are liable for it. Well, you got to hedge all those bets. Well, you do. <laughs> but what that also shows is how, you know, all of these aspects of transportation are so interrelated and can be working at cross purposes, but are also 
really helping each other out. It's so much of it is technology driven. Yeah. Before steam engines, it was a three mile an hour world. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as fast as a as a horse could go, a, a wagon could be pulled, or even or a ship hum- at sea. Or a human could walk. Or a human could walk. Yeah. You know, that that's how fast things went, period. That's why if if you ever do much traveling in Virginia, well, any place in the country, and you and you see places like Ten Mile Tavern, Nine Mile Ordinary. They were about a day's journey between ordinaries or taverns, and so a lot of them were named by what distance they were <laughs> from the previous. <laughs> right. I mean, literally. Yeah. And so it was, you know, that that's about the rate you traveled, maybe around give or take eight to ten miles a day is about how fast you traveled if it wasn't an emergency. Which gives you an idea of how long it takes to get somewhere. Well, yeah, and you know, to to give you an idea, when was the Declaration of Independence declared in Philadelphia? July fourth. Right. It wasn't. A, well, a, hold a, on. No, <laughs> that's when the wording when was, was agreed on. That's when it was declared. No, July second is when the resolution that's, was adopted. The, July fourth is when the wording was agreed on. Well, it was declared See? to a candid world on July fourth. <laughs> yes, but the but independence yes. happened on July second. We agree yes, on yes, that. Yes. Don't ever throw an absolute out. Poor we Adams. Will, we will, oh, he no, was right. He was. Um, <laughs> That's another but, podcast, though. But so Yes, another <laughs> podcast. So July 4th, Declaration, right. Philadelphia. It doesn't get to Savannah and isn't read until August 8th. Yeah. It takes over a month for the news to get from Philadelphia to Savannah. Mm-hmm. Savannah was the last colonial capital to get word of independence. Right. But a month it took for a written thing to make it from one place to the other right. on intercoastal. That was not by road. That was brought right. that was brought by packet on ship. And that was pretty good time, actually. Yeah. And you know, and your point to steamboats and railroads and crashes and things like that, again, technology's driving it. Mm-hmm. You can't have the railroads without the telegraph to, to schedule how all the trains are gonna run. Uh, absolutely. And so communication is just as key as the actual physical movement. So all these things have to have to tie together. And really, uh, once the railroads really take off, you have main lines, then you have the trunk lines. Now the railroad, um, the, the railroad only goes where the railroad goes. Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, exactly. If, you know, if, if, if your town doesn't have a railhead nearby, then it's going right. to take a while. Gainesville mm-hmm. did not get a railroad until 1871. Years after after the Civil War, right. and it wasn't until that point that this area really became the social and economic and political capital of Northeast Georgia. But mm-hmm. it took the railroad to get here, so it drove development, it, it drove the economy, really until the invention of the car for the individual. Right, right. And even then, the roads weren't developed. Right, and that's the other thing. It's like even even with this revolution in travel, that trains were. You know, you you could get across the country in you know three to four days. You you could get from one town to another in a day but like you say it's that's still mass transportation it's it's still many people moving yeah. at the same time in the same vehicle whereas you know the road was was still the old road that it had always been until the car comes along but now it's just so crazy how technology chases each other the internal combustion engine and the automobile let's say the model t that's created although it was you know kind of designed to to operate on America's rickety road system, right. <laughs> but it shows the, that drives in a way that it hadn't been driven before the need to improve the roads. If this if right. this is what's going to be the new mode of transportation for the individual, our current roads simply won't work. 
And so now that kicks in. And, and then the infrastructure to support that. And the infrastructure in. to support it. Exactly. You know, the, the, the mass marketing, the democratization of travel through yes. use of the automobile drives our modern society. I mean, it creates it. It really does create it in a way that there'd been no revolution in it before. And leisure. Generally, broadly speaking, water transport and especially railroads were the main means of travel and transportation in the United States until, even after the car, they Mm -hmm. were the main ones, Mm -hmm. until the interstate system. Right. When the interstate system comes, it combines with the democratization of travel with the automobile, Mm -hmm. and that's why you see tractor trailers, because Mm -hmm. roads in America do go everywhere. Right. They go to your front door. I'm going to say things that seem obvious, but when you compare them to the way things were, even you know in the early 1800s, you can get in a car, back it out of your driveway, and you can end up literally anywhere in the continental U.S. on your own mm-hmm. by paying comparatively a pittance mm-hmm. for what it used to cost to travel. What an age we live in. Yeah, and this the and you know the interstate highway system. You know, of course, is the national defense highway system. It you know Eisenhower's under his his administration's auspices. It was this needs to be developed for national defense. But but even Roosevelt in the 30s had proposed a system. The, the depression it, it, and the war it, kind of right, put the exactly, kibosh on exactly. that. It is our blessing and our curse, <laughs> right. the, the democratization of travel right. with the automobile, right. with all the environmental issues and right. all the social issues and all the economic issues. The automobile, once again, not the first to say this, the automobile is very much in keeping with that American spirit of individuality and freedom. To paraphrase uh, Jack Sparrow in The Black Pearl, you know, our, our car is freedom. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the black pearl is freedom. The ship is free. But, it, but it is. It I is. Mean, th- and that's and I think that's very much was very much also in the mind of Henry Ford when he's we've got it. We've got to get the car oh, democratized. We've got to get it out and to the masses. Everyone who wanted to buy one. Uh, that's why it's the American dream. Yeah, because it gives you ultimate spatial freedom. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and you know we've been talking about surface transportation so far air travel haven't even touched air travel even air- we can be in england yeah. in 10 hours it used to take six weeks yeah if you were lucky yeah but with but with the airfare or, or with flying in general i mean you know how long did it take say between the invention of the automobile and the completion of the post-world war ii you know highway system for the masses to truly get democratized with that travel like that versus how long did it take say for the the airline industry to get to get the prices down from the elite to pretty much anyone can fly yeah it's a lot shorter the the revolution in air flight and air transportation and air travel once again though this is we're talking about travel for an individual it is still cheaper to ship freight over the ocean in a tanker with cargo containers to this very day it's the the sea travel water travel is still the most economical if you're trying to make money uh and you know we're trying to make money now so we need to draw this to a close well and you know (laughs) because let me give you the signal and we didn't it's 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 weird we never space travel we haven't talked about that yet (laughs) tune in next week and we'll talk about space travel it's funny we never we 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 never stop talking because we run out of things to say that's true so anyway Thanks from Ken and Glenn, and we will see you next time. Bye. Then Again with Ken and Glenn is produced by the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center.